Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. First up, apologies for my voice. It'll only be this bad in the intro. I'm taping this from ragweed country. This week, author Nancy Prinzenthal and artist David Mizell. Prinzenthal is the author of Agnes Martin, Her Life and Art, which was just published by Thames and Hudson. It's the first biography of the artist and comes as Martin is undergoing a significant examination. In addition to Prinzenthal's book, earlier this year, the Tate premiered a Martin retrospective, an exhibition that will travel to New York and Los Angeles. Next spring, University of California Press will publish Christina Bryan Rosenberger's Drawing the Line, the early work of Agnes Martin. Prinzenthal is a former senior editor at the magazine Art in America. On the second segment, we revisit a 2013 conversation I had with David Mizell. The HBO series True Detective wrapped up its second season earlier this month. The program featured Mizell's work in its opening sequences. Mizell came onto the program on the occasion of Steidel's publishing a monograph titled Black Maps. But first, Nancy Prinzenthal, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Habsburg Splendor, Masterpieces from Vienna's Imperial Collections, showcasing masterworks assembled over five centuries of empire building by Europe's longest reigning dynasty. The exhibition of some 100 objects from Vienna's Kunsthistorisches Museum is on a national tour this year and opens June 14th at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org Habsburgs for more. Hundreds of neighborhoods, thousands of historic landmarks, one easy search. That's what the Getty, in partnership with the City of Los Angeles, has created with Historic Places LA, the first online information and management system specifically developed for Los Angeles to inventory, map, and describe its significant cultural resources, from places of social importance and architecturally significant buildings to historic districts and bridges. The system is accessible to everyone, ensuring that the ever-changing city keeps a firm hold on its historic roots. Start your virtual trip to Los Angeles at historicplacesla.org. And we're back. Nancy Prinzenthal, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the specifics of Agnes Martin's life and work, I want to ask you a question that T.J. Clark likes talking about. In fact, kind of a question he made the subject of his Mellon lectures at the National Gallery a few years ago. And I think it's a pretty relevant question with Martin. Do you, as a biographer, as somebody who wrote this fascinating book, do you read biography into the art? Do you read the art into the artist's biography? Or do you try to separate the art from the person with a, as much of a brick wall as, as, as you can build, as kind of Clark likes to ad- advocate for? That is an essential question uh, for any biographer of an artist in particular, and especially for a first-time biographer like me. Um, this is my first foray into full-scale biography. So I did write an earlier book about Hannah Wilkie that was meant to be a monograph, but of course with an artist like Wilkie, the life and the work are much harder to separate. And with Martin, that was the question that hovered over my work from the very beginning. I tried to be careful to stay focused on aspects of her life that I think have some bearing on her work. When I first undertook to write about Agnes Martin, there are some key aspects of her life that I was completely unaware of. And a key one was that she suffered from mental illness. She was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, certainly by the 1960s when she was 
in her 50s, um, probably earlier. And I was very careful, or I tried to be very careful, to steer away from treating the work as symptom, as cure, as even as a way of modulating her internal experience. But at the same time, I think that that aspect of her character, as well as many aspects of the communities that she lived in, were very important to her development as an artist. And she lived in some pretty interesting communities. You mentioned that Martin lives in some pretty interesting communities. She was... You know, if we, if we, you know, she's she's born in 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 Canada and in, in what is now Saskatchewan, and and before too long finds her way to the United States. And once she does, she spends a long period as a sort of itinerant teacher slash artist. How did that kind of happen, and what impact does it have on on her? It happened, I think, in part because that was a fairly common route for women who knew they were going to undertake to live independently at a time when very few employment opportunities were on offer. You know, she was born in 1912, so she, you know, her earliest adulthood was in the depths of the Depression, and to be a school teacher was was one of one of the sort of primary options for single women, independent women, and it kind of, I think, propelled her out of her mother's home and into a self-supporting situation. And it continues to be a way that artists support themselves. Certainly a lot of artists earn at least a a partial portion of their income from teaching. I also think there's an aspect of both her character and her work that has to do with a kind of discipline. And she talks about herself with both humor and a certain degree of pride as a disciplinarian. She says that being a disciplinarian is something she picked up from her mother who could achieve discipline by doing that much more than raising an eyebrow, which is something that Burton seems to have been able to do or reports having done in the many years that she was a teacher and also taking jobs as, you know, a sort of dorm matron or sort of all-purpose crowd control in the classroom or crowd control in, in residences situations. Some of these stories are a little murky. It appears that her very earliest teaching was in quite simple, even primitive one-room schoolhouse situations in the rural Northwest when she had a first teaching degree in Bellingham, Washington and, and taught in rural Washington State before coming out to New York. And then she taught in a number of different places in the elementary and, you know, the grade school levels before she briefly became a teacher at the college level. I don't think that she had the kind of give and take in the classroom that we associate with teachers who continue to teach at the college level throughout their career and and really thrive on absorbing information from their students and, and articulating their ideas through their teaching. I think by the time Martin, I know by the time Martin achieved her mature style, she was no longer teaching. Do you think that the experience of moving around so much across the Northwest, across the Southwest, to New York, and back and back, <laughs> surfaces in the work, or or does it surface in the work less than one maybe might expect? Mm, that's such an interesting question. She was a restless soul. Boy, was she. At a time when, I mean, especially during World War II, when I can only imagine 
because of, of various restrictions such as fuel, it would have been a little harder to move around. Yeah, and you know, I'll, I'll be honest, there are aspects of her life that I was not able to fill in. That's something I, I think I've tried to be um, candid about in my book. And I think that you know, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of research being done on Martin as we speak. Maybe some of these gaps will be filled in in the next few years as scholars continue to dig out the details of her life. There's very little archival material. But a couple of things are interesting. It's worth worth noting there, though, that, I mean, there are artists who were similarly nomadic in the same part of the country, such as Clifford Still, for whom there are similar gaps. And she was very good at covering her tracks, and she was also quite good at enforcing a sort of code of silence. She did ask her friends not to talk about her both while she was alive and after she was gone. And um, some of them have been faithful to that promise. So it was an interesting adventure to put this biography together. But, it, you know, in any case, that the thing about her nomadic spirit, on the one hand, once she achieved her, her sort of signature style, when she had her commanding inspirations about what her work was going to be, it remained within a fairly fixed set of parameters, even though her life took some kind of hairpin turns. It is also important that Martin, and actually strikingly of a number of her close friends, Lenore Tani, for instance, that she loved to drive. This is something that a lot of Martin's friends talk about with some humor and note her delight. She liked big cars. She liked fancy cars. When she was wealthy enough to afford them, she always had one on hand. And she loved to drive at speed and with some abandon. One of the first really important influences that that on, on which or on whom you plant kind of Martin's flag is John Dewey. How did Martin find Dewey and what in Dewey did she find revelatory? You know, I don't, I don't think Martin ever had direct exposure to Dewey, but he was a kind of founding figure at Teachers College where she got her, her second teaching degree. She ultimately got a, a master's degree in education with an with a major in visual art at a teacher's college. She completed that degree in 1954, having started there in 1941. So she went back for three stints. And Dewey was sort of the reigning intellectual figure, the, the reigning educational philosopher, of course. And I think there are a couple of things about his spirit that kind of conform to Martin's own, even if she didn't take her cues from him. As a pragmatist, as someone who believed in the efficacy of art, that art should be something that achieved good in the world, I think his character as as a thinker would have appealed to Martin pretty strongly. Of course, she never believed that art should have political or social purpose, but that it should provide viewers with a a certain experience, an experience of happiness, an experience of innocence, of joy, all of the abstract emotional states that later in her life she named her works for. And so as a philosopher who named his primary book about art, art as experience, there would have been that sympathy, there would have been that mutual sort of understanding of how it is art moves people in the world, what it's good for. Martin first kind of 
gains or earns support for her work during an early stint in New Mexico, then, then goes to New York, and then kind of goes back and forth a little bit. If we go back to that earliest stint in New Mexico, what kind of work was she making and, and what was kind of influencing it? Martin was in New Mexico in the early period. That would be after her first year at Teachers College and then after her second stint there in the, in, the, in 1951-52. So she was there in the middle, late 1940s and then again through the early and mid-1950s. And she ultimately settled in Taos in that period, which is a really lively art community where there was an awful lot of traffic from modernists from the East Coast, from European modernists, painters living in the Northwest. So she was exposed to quite a lot of what was going on in cultural capitals, a little bit of sort of time lag, a little bit of a remove. And she went through a series of, from what we can piece together from the work that she didn't destroy, of course, like many artists, she was very eager to destroy examples of her work that she didn't consider mature. But she went through periods of both fairly conventional landscape painting, and some of it quite beautiful. You can see the influence of John Marin in those, in those early works through periods of biomorphic abstraction, landscape-based, and then increasingly abstract. You can see Paul Clay, you can see Miro, you can see Stamos. And then ultimately, the, the work became more abstract still. When she came to New York in 1957 at Betty Parsons's invitation, she was still doing that biomorphic abstraction for a couple of years. Her progress in New York was extremely rapid. But during the New Mexico years, you can see her moving through a number of different stylistic positions. I want to get to that rapidity, that extreme rapidity of progress in New York in a moment. But I guess first, let's get Martin back into New York after after that New Mexico stint. Where Where does she move into New York? And who else is there? Well, when she came to New York, which... I said was at Betty Parsons's invitation. Parsons had seen her work in New York during the years when she was at Teachers College. Parsons was also a frequent visitor to New Mexico, and on that 1957 trip, she made this offer to Martin, which she made to other artists as well, which was, you one representation by me, you've got to make a commitment to live in New York, which was a challenge that I think was helpful. Um, I think it, it definitely bumped up artists' games to live in a very lively community like the one that Martin wound up in in New York. And so when she first came to New York, she lived for a couple of months with Betty Parsons on 14th Street. And then at her invitation, Martin went down to the Coenti Slip area, and that's where she set up shop. And that was an extremely lively, varied community of artists. And what other artists were there? Who, 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 With whom did she quickly become friends? So some of the artists that were there were Jack Youngerman, Ellsworth Kelly was important to her, Robert Indiana. Kelly in Indiana and Kelly in particular were close to her both as friends and as artistic, I wouldn't say mentors, although at the same time the influence I think it's important to note was very mutual. There was a lot of back and forth 
Agnes was the elder, one of the elder artists down there. She was 45 when she arrived in New York. Most of the artists she hung out with were a little bit significantly younger than she was. And although she was still finding her feet as an artist, she was a compelling person. She exuded, this goes back to her skills in disciplinary, and she exuded a certain amount of um, command. I think she had that in her personality. And uh, she was smart. She knew what she she was after, and she paid a lot of attention to what was going on around her. Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg were down there as well. They weren't the closest of friends with Martin, but their influence was certainly felt. They were among the artists who gained success most quickly down there. So it was a very varied scene. Uh, She was very close with Ed Reinhardt when she was living in the Coenties Slip neighborhood. So she saw him often, although he didn't live there. And those were some of the influences. She was also very close with Lenore Tawney when she was living in the Coenties Slip area. Lenore Tawney, of course, is a textile artist, a weaver. So many critics have seen a mutual influence there, that there's an element in Martin's development of the grid of a kind of woven texture to the work, which she adamantly denied. She um, got quite annoyed when people made a connection between her development of grids and anything to do with textiles or indeed with anything to do with the merest hint of figurative reference. And I guess it was meaningful that Martin ends up on the eastern side of Manhattan around a group of artists who were not maybe of Martin's own generation who hung out or on the west side uh, around the abstract expressionist generation. There was a, a distinct social sort of polarity going on there. And, you know, one of the things that became clear to me as I was researching this book, and I'm certainly not the first person to make note of it, but I'm surprised at how many people are still kind of taken aback by the fact that these two communities set themselves up in in, um, quite self-conscious ways in the sense that Coenty Slip artists, many of whom were gay men and lesbian women, felt themselves to be in a place that was safe for them and that was at odds with what was going on in 10th Street, kind of brawling, drinking, macho, some of it mythical, but some of it absolutely true aspect of the abstract expressionist crowd in the West Village and in the 10th Street area. So there was a certain degree of self-consciousness about that. I think it's possible to overplay it, and I think it's possible also to overplay the cohesiveness of the Coenty Slip community. And some of the residents down there talk about it as, you know, uh, the perfect community for artists who didn't like community, who, you know, what they valued most was being alone in their studio. And in fact, many of them, and this was pointed out to me by a few of the artists who lived down there, many of them went straight from Quincy Slip into, you know, remote rural areas and never again lived in a metropolitan area. So there was that aspect to it. And Quinty Slip is a community, in some ways, it's still, the seaport area is still like this, that was really isolated from the rest of New York City and felt quite um, lost in time, and a little bit, uh, you know, isolated geographically. It's, it's not well integrated into the rest of Manhattan. 
One of the most interesting things in the book is is it about this period where you detail a number of different artists, some who who lived at Cointe's Slip and and Martin knew, others artists either from Europe or the United States whose work influenced her own. And we could take up a whole show talking about some of these. So I'm just going to try running through some names that I think are important to hit on, and maybe you can give us a few sentences on each and and how their work or their lives or their personhood influenced Martin. The first one is someone she did not know, but whose work is certainly in hers, and that's Jean Miro. As I said in relationship to the work she was doing in New Mexico, there was a very important period in her work where she went through a process of integrating his landscape-based surrealism. You know, Martin responded so keenly to the landscape. I think it was a great effort for her to suppress the impulse to paint the landscape, to paint the light. She thrived on being out in nature. So I think Miro was one important early example of how to draw from nature as he did in a language of a kind of um, very internalized abstraction, a very sort of dreamy, organic language of abstraction. I loved what you wrote about the relationship between Martin and Ellsworth Kelly. It was, I think, there too, you see so strongly in Kelly's work, and especially in comparing his drawings to his paintings, an effort to sort of sublimate the love of nature into a language of of pure abstraction. And I think that effort was something that they made together that, that they probably talked about and worked through together. I was also interested in thinking about the period in which they were closest. That would be the late 50s and, and into the 60s, that Kelly had just come from a period of living in Paris after the war and had experimented with automatism, with different chance-generated methods of composition, which is not something we much associate with Kelly and certainly not something we much associate with geometric abstraction. So he was doing automatist exercises that yielded linear abstraction. you know. And I think... That is something that it must have been really interesting to Martin. How do we get from that sort of yielding to inner impulses to a kind of very linear and strictly two-dimensional, in fact, in many ways, drawing-based form of abstraction? I'm not saying that she embraced automatism as, as we know it, but she certainly responded to the dictates of inner impulse to that form of vision she called inspiration. So that relationship seems, yes, really important and interesting to me. You already mentioned Lenore Tani, so I'll mention Carissa. And Carissa is an artist not much talked about today, but her career was on a meteoric path in the years when she was in New York, which is roughly when when Martin was here in New York, Chris, in fact, stayed for a period after Martin had headed back out west. And Chris was very young when she landed in New York. She was half Martin's age. She was in her mid-20s. Early 20s. Yeah. And so from the beginning, a lot of the work that she did was based on book and letter forms. 
So she did an early series called the Cycladic Books, which were plaster casts. They were actually made from plastic, uh, casting the inside of cardboard boxes. They took the form of roughly of cycladic figures, hence the name, but they also very much had the form of open books. She did a number of reliefs that were based on letter forms. She made very big paintings that were based on gridded compartmentalization of print, newsprint, and the work she became best known for at that time were these huge neon signs based on letter forms. And it is my feeling, it's one of the things I try to lay out in my discussion of Martin's development of the grid, that the impulse for those early pencil-drawn grids was in some ways a writerly impulse. It was an impulse that came from the impulse that came from the very strong inclination she had to regulate a kind of inner thought, to regulate an inner monologue in the same way that writers do by setting pencil to surface and inscribing the direction, the force, the patterns of of written speech. And so looking at a wide range of artists with whom she was associated at that time and seeing how they integrated writing and imagery, strictly um, abstract visual imagery, was something that I think was formative. And Lenore Tani comes into that as well. I think just as important as seeing Tani make those suspended weavings would have been seeing Tani weave strips of of print into these small, very intricate collages she was making at the time. And there too, I think that the influence was quite mutual. They were they were watching each other. You mentioned, I think, elsewhere in the book that there was always a pencil in Martin's hand when she began a painting. And I gather you think that this period and that experience is where that kind of comfort comes from. I do, absolutely. And in fact, you can go all the way to the end of, of her career and see that pencil still there. Yes. One of the things I was happy to see in the exhibition at the Tate was a drawing called Words, occupying a primary place in a gallery that was devoted to her drawings. So there was a certain amount of self-consciousness, I think, about the place of language in her work. And there was a long period when she, period, but a significant period when she was doing a fair amount of writing that she shared with the public, both in the form of talks that she gave and also in the form of um, writing meant for publication or that did wind up in publication. The last artist I wanted to, to throw at you, as it were, is is, is one, is, is Mark Rothko. Martin's 1953, The Expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, is about as Rothko-esque a canvas as any painter in this period makes. But it's a 1953 painting, and it's looking at stuff seems to be looking at stuff Rothko made a full decade earlier. Was there a personal relationship? Was there not? And, and kind of any idea why Martin is, is looking at Rothko 10 years before at this point? You know, the influence of Rothko is absolutely undeniable, not only in that early and, and, and quite odd, fascinating painting that, that you mentioned, but so clearly in some of the earliest geometric rectangle-based abstractions absolutely influenced by Rothko. I, I believe they met once. I know she was 
deeply interested in his life. She read that Lee Selda's book and urged it on a friend. I think there are other reasons for her interest in that book in particular. I don't have a, a particular reason for explaining the fact that they never became close friends, but his use of, you know, the floating fields of color was so important to her development of the kinds of fields of not color, but of a a kind of pattern-based experience that she ultimately developed. Martin, in the very late 40s through the early 50s, moves incredibly, incredibly quickly through the kind of biomorphic surrealism that was everywhere in New York at the time through to shapes and and, and grids, the the shapes and grids we we now think of when we think of her her mature work. I strongly imagine that you've thought about how that happened so quickly and why. I think she was primed. You know, as I said, she she wasn't a beginning artist. She had been painting for 20 years, painting and throwing away and painting and throwing away and painting and saving. And I think... Being in New York, just as Betty Parsons had foreseen, was kind of kickstart of a new a new language. And as with so many things pertaining to art, there is an element of the ultimately unknowable. Of course, when Martin talked about how this transformation occurred, she talks about inspiration. She talks, she begins to talk about the arrival to her mind's eye of a painting fully formed And her job as an artist is simply to blow it up from postage stamp size to this six-foot square that had become her exclusive format. She painted that six-foot square until the last decade of her life. So, of course, we have to try and come to grips with what that actually meant. What, What was this inspiration? How does it conform to and how does it differ from other artists' use of the same language? And I think in in some ways it was unique. I think it's close to the kind of inner experience that we also call vision. I don't want to confuse it with something that we would call a hallucination. It was just a very precise, as she described it, manifestation of the things she knew she wanted to paint. It didn't always work. Sometimes she would execute an inspiration and it, it wouldn't turn out as she had hoped it would. And then that painting would be trashed. So that's not really a satisfying art historical or even biographical explanation. I think the safest thing to say in more conventional terms is that she just speeded up the process that had been going on. And in fact, when she started making grids, she continued for a couple of years to revert to the more biomorphic painting and drawing for a little while until she was sure she knew what she was doing. Those early grids, some of which are grids, others of which are lines and forms hovering on on kind of a wash, often included kind of outside elements. I'm thinking, for example, of Little Sister, the 1962 work at the Guggenheim, which, which features nails, lots of nails, on, on, on the canvas. Do you have a sense of how she not really came to, but became comfortable with this level of, of seeming reduction and, I don't know, almost quiet after making paintings for so long that had been kind of much more active? It was a gradual process, and I think in 
Martin's work, you know, active is itself a relative term. You know, she was never making work that was um, really aggressive in its palette or in its form and, and pattern. But she was interested for a long time in achieving what I think of as a certain kind of of metallic glint, a certain kind of shine or glow. And when she arrived at the seaport, she experimented for some time with assemblage, with using detritus from the area and making work that was more sculptural than painterly. And there are a number of such works in the exhibition that's now at the Tate and is coming to the United States, LACMA and the Guggenheim. So there, in works like The Laws, which uses boat spikes, and in this work that hasn't been shown in decades and decades, Burning Tree, which to me looks like a Viking helmet. It's this spike-tipped series of horns circling a segment of, of tree trunk. She is playing around with the confluence of organic metallic form and arriving at regular geometry through the use of this natural and found material. Little Sister, which is a grid in which each unit of the grid has an, a little brass brad, a little brass tack hammered into it, is one of a series of works using nail heads that she made when she was working out the system of grid-based paintings. And she talks about a, a painting using thousands of nail heads that she destroyed, which of course we wish she hadn't done. But that was on the way, I think, toward letting the merest, merest glint that you get from the graphite of a pencil carry that weight of or carry that evanescence of light bouncing off the surface of a canvas. And there were a couple of experiments she made in the in the middle 1960s with gold leaf, which I think point, points in the same direction. Friendship is a painting that is a field of gold leaf. It's in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art, and it is also in this traveling exhibition. It's seldom shown. It's very fragile, but it is going to, to travel with this show. Yeah, gold leaf seems like, you know, in the context of the narrative you build in the book, gold leaf seems like an extraordinary material for an artist to use after using boat spikes and, and now rusty nails. When does Martin leave New York for good and where does she go? What does she do? In 1967, she packed up and headed west, which is the moment that I think marks the beginning of the mythologization of I'm not sure that's a word, but it's beginning of the development of the Agnes Martin myth, the saint of the desert, Agnes Martin. And in fact, there are a number of reasons given for her departure. The one she always gave was that she lost her loft. Again, that's a pretty familiar artist story. Real estate is always, at some point in an artist's career, a key decision-making factor. She had entered her romantic relationship with Krusa. She had had a psychotic break. There are a number of things that went on in 1967. She got an NEA grant on the positive side, which enabled her to buy a, a pickup truck and a camper, a pickup truck hauled, and she headed 
back to a, a place she had lived in, in in early adulthood. She headed, headed back to the Pacific Northwest and actually also went back to Canada. She had lived in Vancouver as a teenager and actually in her school age years as well. So she, she kind of went rogue. She did some solitary camping. Not all of her travels in that time were solitary. Lenore Tani was with her for part of the time. And it wasn't all quite as desperately remote and challenging, as is sometimes said. She loved being in nature, but she also, you know, liked having creature comforts when she could. So she came back down the West Coast, traveled in the Southwest, and ultimately had a vision suggesting that she should go back to New Mexico, and so she did. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that she suffered from schizophrenia. What impact did that have on her life, on her work, and maybe on her decision not to be in New York? Oh, it's a complicated question, and the answer is manifold consequences. I think the first that has to be said is that schizophrenia is often a very disabling illness, and her success in the face of it, the way she was able to manage her career is really quite remarkable. I think it's also important to say that in the periods when she was most ill, she did not work. Acute illness and productive work are not compatible. I was also struck when I began to think carefully about what it was like to have that diagnosis in the years when it it affected her most against a cultural background of social background of, to my mind, real confusion about what mental illness was. It was a time when a lot of sophisticated writers and members of the sort of chattering class talked about mental illness as a form of social activism as a form of creative revenge is a choice, which I think is now hard to credit. I don't think we think about mental illness in those terms so much anymore. I think it's more widely accepted as an organic disease like any other. And I think the crosswinds of all that would have been deeply confusing to Martin to the extent that she paid attention to them at all. She was, you know, she was struggling with something that really sent her under into periods of pretty deep misery. Some of which she writes about quite openly in texts that she prepares for talks and, and for publication. And it's pretty much overlooked, not just the hallucinations that she suffered from and the and the confusion that resulted, but also the depression that was part of it. She talks about that quite openly. I believe that its consequences for her work can be expressed pretty much in in terms of a desire to create an area of order, visual order, of internal order, of emotional order. That was something she strove for. And it's not unique to people who suffer from, from acute illness. I think all of us can respond on some level to that striving for a sense of composure. She ends up back, as you, as you mentioned, and famously, in northern New Mexico. Why did she pick there? For a lot of reasons. I think 
the landscape appealed to her. It was a landscape that she knew. I discovered when I went up to Macklin, Saskatchewan, which was where she was born and where she lived. Uh, it's not entirely clear what the end date there is. She lived until she was at least two or three, but probably four or five. She, I think, internalized on some level an experience of that vast, open clean that Saskatchewan is and particularly the quality of the light, the vastness of the sky, the extremes of weather, all of that I think felt like home to her. New Mexico was a known quantity, it was affordable and it came to her in a vision, it came to her in the vision of an adobe brick or in the vision of the plains where she felt that she was at home and that that was where her travels were going to were going to deposit her. So she stayed first in outside the town of Cuba on the Portales Mesa. And uh, those conditions, the conditions that she chose for herself there were indeed pretty primitive. And uh, and her financial situation was pretty constrained. She began being represented by the Pace Gallery in 1974. And until then, and even for a little while after, she had, you know, very little in the way of financial resources. It's also the fact that the community in which she had been living in Taos where she didn't wind up in the second New Mexico phase until the last decade of her life. But Taos and, to a certain extent, Santa Fe, she lived outside Santa Fe and Galisteo for a long period, were communities that were very welcoming to independent people of every stripe, to independent women in particular, and again, in Taos and, to a certain extent, in Santa Fe as well. There were long-established communities of gay men and lesbian women. So there was that too, I think that sort of backdrop. I think it was a sense of tolerance and and diversity that felt familiar to her, even the extent of the integration of Native American populations into mainstream culture, which is true of New Mexico, and actually surprisingly important to Western Canada to Saskatchewan in particular would have felt like home. I'm shortchanging the last 20 or 30 years of, of her life in our conversation, but but the book does not. But one of the one of the things that jumps out to me and and, and to others, of course, about the work in in from New Mexico till the end of her life is we see multiple colors on in in single artworks kind of come back into the work. Something that in much of the late New York work was kind of gone. How does being in New Mexico influence what she does on canvas, or does it? I think it's practically impossible not to see the the palette that she began to work with when she returned to Mexico is reflecting the New Mexico landscape. So she worked essentially with very dilute red, very dilute blue, and white. That was her palette for a long time, starting in the middle 70s and until the the very last years when she introduced colors that she hadn't used in a long time, if at all. She gave herself a, a lot of, of leeway in the late works, which is so interesting. But the, the, the range of pale reds, which grew quite warm in some canvases, verging on a kind of brick color, although not saturated as, as brick color is, but a kind of pale brick, pale blue. Those are colors that begin to suggest that vivid, vivid blue sky of New Mexico, the, the redness of 
the New Mexican landscape. There's also the influence of, I believe, of some of the travels she undertook, you know, the blue of the very, very, very pale blue of that, that can be seen in the series called the the, the series that the Whitney Museum has, which is generally described as an all-white series, has hints of blue in it that reflect a trip she had recently made to Greece. I think that's um, something that one of her travel mates suggested to me, and I think it's right. So there, I think, despite her denial of that connection, I think that there is an element of the landscape in that palette. Nancy Prinsenthal, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you very much for having me on the on the podcast. Appreciate it. Having recently completed a major renovation of its Tatoando design building, the Pulitzer Arts Foundation is now open with three exhibitions: Calder Lightness, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces, and Fred Sandback Sixty Four Three Part Pieces. On view through September twelfth. The exhibitions offer visitors unique opportunities to experience the artist's works. The Pulitzer's expansive, light-filled upper level provides an ambiance that animates Calder's hanging mobiles and offers multiple vantage points from which to view these iconic works. In its first exhibition since 1975, Sandback's 64 three-part pieces makes a U.S. debut in one of the Pulitzer's new galleries, with a different sculpture presented every week. Installed by the artist himself, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces provides a rare opportunity to see a large concentration of these works from 1972. For more details on the exhibitions, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Dear Nemesis, Nicole Eisenman, 1993-2013, on view at its La Jolla location from May 9th through September 6th. For 20 years, Nicole Eisenman has developed a creative vision that combines high and low culture with virtuosic skill. Using centuries-old art-making conventions and a multitude of art-historic influences with contemporary subject matter, she has created depictions of community, identity, and sexuality. Her incisive socio-political critique operates through the quotidian and the absurd in ways that are both formally playful and visually breathtaking. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. If you've been watching HBO's True Detective and thought you recognized the pictures in the show's title sequence, you're probably right. They were taken by David Mizell. I talked with Mizell in 2013 on the occasion of Steidel's publication of his monograph, Black Maps. David Mizell, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start with something really broad. Why is beauty an effective strategy when it comes to looking at the degraded or massively man-impacted landscapes of the American West? Well, to approach it from a slightly different angle, I think that we often don't trust beauty. Beauty is actually seen as problematic because we think that beauty is not a serious way of knowing or a serious means of investigation. It's not a, it's not a tool, but I think it actually can be a tool. It lets us see into arenas that we wouldn't otherwise see, and it lets it, it can captivate us and it can help us imagine what we don't yet know or understand. I think there's a distinction to be made between something that's beautiful versus something that's perhaps glamorous. You know, something that that's beautiful doesn't mean that it's empty of meaning or shallow. It means that it that we are in some way attracted to it or 
seduced by it or that we find it compelling visually. As I flip through the new Steidel book, I read the more recent work, the color work, as even more beautiful than the work from the mid-'80s. And I wonder if you think you've embraced beauty as a strategy more as your career has gone on. Well, I think it's a double-edged sword or maybe a two-pronged approach because the the color that I've embraced is the content of these sites, and the content of these sites is often highly toxic and problematic. So for me, the the turning point in the work uh, from working only in black and white to essentially embracing the color of these sites, it wasn't so much about wanting to make pictures that were beautiful, but but perhaps wanting to make pictures that that understood how complex these places were and that part of the the seductiveness of of these colors is in fact their 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 poisonous quality. You started making color images in 1989, I think, with the mining project. That's right. So let's go back to kind of nearly the beginning. You were born in New York, and you went to school at Princeton. In 1983, you went to the West. I don't know if that was for the first time or not, but you went to Mount St. Helens as an assistant to Emmett Gowan. Were you interested in the Western landscape before that, or was something in your college years happening that interested you in in the Western landscape? You know, I, I had the opportunity really to work alongside Emmett, not so much even as an assistant, but he was very generous in allowing a student or two to accompany him on on some of these trips that he had made. And I should I should quickly point out that there are images of yours of Mount St. Helens from 1983 in the book. There's one or two images from yeah exactly in Julian Cox's essay that that really that trip to St. Helens was really a trigger for me. I I had not been to the American West before that, actually. So it was, for me, an eye-opening trip on many levels. I had always been interested in the the idea of the West, but but actually growing up in the suburbs of New York, it was something that seemed, and then going to school, essentially, in the suburbs of New York, it was something that seemed, it was something that I explored more through pictures and through 19th century pictures, you know, William Henry Jackson and Timothy O'Sullivan, I was very interested in the the USGS exploratory photographs of the 19th century. So I had experienced Western space only pictorially at that point or by reading about it. We were, we mentioned that there are two of your St. Helens photos in the, in the, in the book as part of Julian Cox's essay. One of them is photographed titled Wall of Ash, walking to the crater, Mount St. Helens, 1983. And it's a picture that is compositionally quite similar to Cezanne's Monson Victoire paintings. And I wonder if that was a conscious reference. Were you particularly interested in engaging painting at that point? Absolutely. That's great that you see that. That's wonderful, actually. And and the idea of Monson Victoire, this, this, this site that, that Cezanne returns to again and again and again, that it's a way for him to explore ideas about painting and about space and about light and about the relationship of human perception to the natural world is something, those are all areas that interest me a lot. So yes, I, I don't know that I made the, that photograph with that in mind, but it's certainly why that photograph became important to me. And, and, and you know, one of the reasons that, that it was something that was, that I found in the edit of that work and, and that became 
you know, one of the, for me, the most important images from that project. Mm, I, I think that a huge number of particularly American photographers in the 70s and early 80s were really working through painting with their pictures. Louis Baltz is, is maybe the clearest example. Is that something you re, you remember thinking about or talking about with other students back then? It was something that I was doing. I don't know that I really spoke about it with other students, but the way that one studies visual art at Princeton as an undergrad, or at least when I was there, this is how it was structured, is that in fact you are an art history student and then you do a program in visual arts that's a sort of small subset. So I was studying art history and I was studying the history of painting and in particular studying the history of painting from, from 18 and, and the history of art from 1850 forward and and art and architecture, I should say. And so there's, yes, there's a lot of different painting that, that works its way into the work and different projects, I think, work through different eras of painting in different ways. Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco curator Julian Cox has an essay in the book, and he draws a link between the paintings of Richard Diebenkorn, who famously flew over landscapes as part of his painting practice, and he draws a connection between Diebenkorn's work and your work. And I wonder if you've paid attention to kind of aerial views or aerial started works, if you will, of non-photographers like Diebenkorn. Somewhat, not extensively. It's not so much that the, that a painter might have been working from an aerial perspective. It's 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 a little bit wider of a net than that. So, you know, for example, Helen Frankenthaler, her work is really phenomenally interesting to me, and Clifford Still's work, and more recently Gerhard Richter's work, and so it's for me, uh, more about abstraction, I think, than it is about, and, and, and that is related to the aerial view, certainly, but I haven't so much, you know, followed specific painters because perhaps they also have been influenced by the aerial view. It's more how they're working with space, how they are abstracting space, and, you know, those those are really kind of motivating motivating reasons. Your work has also become more abstract, and I wonder if you worry that a picture you take might be too abstract, or are you trying to get as close to something that really is abstract as possible? I think abstraction is a very powerful tool, and for me, these photographs are not really intended to be purely documentary in any way at all. So abstraction is a way to shift the photograph away from being about its surface content and toward something that has metaphorical possibility. I want to ask one more thing about the aerial tradition. I was really pleased to see that Casas Varnellis, who is the director of the Network Architecture Lab at the Columbia Architecture School, cited William Garnett as a precedent for your work. Garnett, I think, is wildly underknown, and, and I'm a big fan. I wonder if you knew about Garnett early on, if, if Garnett was somebody you had paid, paid attention to? No, I, re- I knew of his work, but it didn't quite connect with me. It has connected, I've connected with it since, but as a student, it, I, you know, it, it didn't really have that much resonance for me. You know, I think for me, the, 
the idea of the aerial view is intimately connected to the way that architects see and render things. And so from a pretty early age, I had imagined myself, imagined my future path as that of an architect. And I had studied architecture and worked briefly in architecture and uh, had gone to Princeton in order to study architecture. And so I was used to this idea of seeing things in, in plan and also as well in elevation and cross-section. And so I think those ways that architects render space was a very strong influence. I think there were other photographers like, for example, Frederick Sommer, who was working with a, this kind of horizonless view that were much more influential on my ideas and, and my thoughts about how to put together a picture than perhaps William Garnett. I wanted to see if we could pick a couple particular pictures and kind of talk through them a bit. One of them is Terminal Mirage 19 from 2003. Could you talk us through how you are above something to the point where you pick the composition that that you want the picture to have? How do you get from being above the vastness to getting to color line and composition? Well, working from the air is challenging, for sure, because you you become a kind of disembodied eye and you're sort of floating around, but you cannot make the same picture twice because you are in motion. You can work around an area for a while, and, I'm, and I work very closely with the, my pilot to, in a sense, choreograph his maneuvering of the plane. I'm instructing him as to his speed, his elevation, and also, most importantly, I think, how he banks the plane. So I'm not mounting the camera in the belly of the plane. In other words, the way maps might be made by the USGS or anybody who wants to sort of render things with a certain kind of accuracy. I'm interested in the way that shapes I'm interested, first of all, in hand-holding the camera and having a kind of bodily connection to making the picture. But I'm also interested in how space gets twisted and torqued and, in a sense, recomposed through not only the camera and the lens and my shooting, but also how the, the plane's angle and position relative to the Earth allows certain compositions to be yielded that, that actually don't exist in real space. So with Terminal Mirage 19, you know, I'm making this kind of almost pure orthogonal gridded view without ever actually being in a position that would <laughs> permit that to happen. So I'm working against what actually might be on the ground. I'm working against what what that twisting and torquing of space would normally offer. So this was this picture was probably, in other words, a real struggle to make. Do you know or remember if you were trying to get both the the straight lines, which seem to clearly be man-made, into the composition, as well as what seem to be more organic lines, these kind of feathery fingers of water, into into a picture with each other? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, there are certain pictures that I make that come 
later in the edit when you see something that maybe you weren't quite certain of when you were in the air. But there are others where I know exactly, I know exactly the picture that I want to make, and I will work in an area for a while in order to know that I that I've that I've made it. And this is one of those for sure. And it actually has even to do with the way that that kind of organic root system is is inverted. That you're, and that the white line that works its way almost completely across the middle of the image that is almost becomes a sort of false horizon line so that we're looking above and below ground at the same time as we're looking at the surface of the earth. I also wanted to ask about two of your mining pictures from 1989, the mining project Clifton, Arizona 5 and the mining project Clifton, Arizona 6. In these pictures, and maybe in this body of work, how important was it to you for people to identify what was going on? Maybe not to know, you know, what was being mined or 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 such, but just that there was a mine and that it was a massive human intrusion into the landscape. You know, these were places that were new and unknown to me as well. Yes, I had done a lot of research before, but I hadn't seen images of these sites before I got there. So making these pictures is actually a process of exploration for me into the unknown. And what I came to realize pretty quickly was I didn't want these pictures to tell people what to think or to instruct them how to feel about a particular industry. I wanted the pictures to ask questions rather than answer them, or to perhaps even enable the viewer to ask questions. So these two images in particular are the tiniest fragments of the mines from which they come. In particular, Clifton, Arizona 6, this grid of buildings that looks almost like a checkerboard or tic-tac-toe set up. I mean, it's very compelling, and and it and it it looks like a target, you know. In fact, my understanding is that these buildings are contain explosives that are used in the mining process. But in terms of the scale of that gridded section of buildings relative to the mine, how do I describe it? I mean, if you were in an Olympic-sized swimming pool and you took a thimbleful of water, <laughs> that would still be larger than you know the the ratio of that thimble to the pool would still be larger than than the than a, the gr- these gridded buildings are to the mine as a whole. In fact, I had photographed just that same mine years before in black and white, and I. In another image, I don't believe it's in the book, but in another image that I made, I could see these these tiny little dots <laughs> that were these explosive containment buildings. So scale is is you know huge at these sites, but it's also a a, a kind of you know as you as I'm selecting these very fragmentary uh, places to make these images of, you know I I, I feel like I'm stitching together these these very selective moments and very selective images that that in a way can't represent the whole, you know, as much as you might think that they do. They 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 really only exist to be pictures themselves. They they I I think the more I've worked at these sites, the more I've realized how essentially burdened photography is with the notion that it represents reality. It, it 
do not represent reality. It's a translation, or thousands of translations, of reality until actually it's something closer to fiction. That picture of the buildings reminds me of Noguchi's 1947 face on, on Mars. Were you were you shooting for that? You know, I would love to claim that I was. <laughs> I, I knew it afterward. I don't think I knew it at the time, but I certainly knew it afterward. And even the way that the that right-angled berm wraps around two sides of it references the way that that face is sort of pushing its way out of the ground. And the way the scale is ambiguous, the scale of the, you, you know, it's hard to tell how big anything in the photograph is or really, you can kind of figure out what it is, but it's just such a vast space. You don't have a sense for how big these things are kind of like in the Noguchi. Well, David Mizell, thanks so much for the book and thanks for talking with me on this week's show. You're very welcome. My pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.